After the second service last week, a friend of mine who had been here asked me, so Nathaniel, what percentage of your sermon illustrations involve basketball? Uh, quite a few, apparently, uh, although I've not kept track. Um, anyway, this morning we're going to start with another one. On Tuesday afternoon this last week, I played basketball for a few minutes. Truly, 10 to 15 minutes. I, I did not warm up well. I didn't stretch my muscles, and I'm not in the best of shape. Uh, actually, some of you have heard me say this before, but a, a friend of mine recently pointed out that I am a shape. So it's not that I am not, that I need to get in shape. I just need to change shape. Round is a shape. Um, but regardless, after playing for just a few minutes, I was quite sore. And the following day, Wednesday, I was at basketball practice with a team that I coach. One of our players twisted his ankle, and so we were one person short in a drill that we were doing. So without thinking, I stepped right in to fill the void. I can, I can do this. And when my turn came in, I, I stepped out of the line, and I began to, as I understand it, I began to run. But immediately I knew, ah, this is a mistake. Uh, several muscles in my body just rebelled. I felt twinges in my legs, tendons and ligaments warning me that if I pushed any harder, they would stop working. And I, I tried to run down the court and I felt just completely out of sync as though my limbs were going in different directions and none of them were obeying my brain. I had a very clear picture in my mind of what should be happening and it wasn't. I made it about 10, 15 meters maybe and then uh, one of the players on the team passed me the ball. So now everything fell into place. Now I'm ready. The ball's on its way to me. And I know that as soon as that ball's in my hand, I'm just going to, that, that natural habit is going to come back and I'll be able to show these kids a thing or three. And so the ball came toward me and went right through my hands. <laughs> right through my hands, it kind of, I just slipped out and went out of bounds, and I felt so foolish and silly. I also stopped. But I was reminded again, as if I needed to be reminded, of how the human body needs to work together as a united entity in order to accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. My body had been completely disunified, one leg trying to go one way, the other leg not going anywhere, the arms trying to keep me balanced and catch the ball, and all of them saying, this is a bad idea. Now, Luke has already shown us a beautiful picture at the end of Acts 4 of the unity that characterized the early days of the church. And we saw the result of that unity, which is that the word continued to spread and the number of disciples continued to grow. Today, we're going to see the urgency of valuing and preserving that unity. Because if the church is divided, we will not be able to fulfill the tasks to which God has called us. Now, our context here as we enter Acts chapter 6 is that the apostles have just come through a time of persecution. It was really their strongest resistance to date. All 12 had been arrested. They had been put in jail overnight. God released them, but then they were brought back and they were flogged. They were beaten. 
before they were sent on their way, having been told not to speak in the name of Jesus. Of course, we saw the exact opposite result that was expected by the religious leaders, and that is that the word of God continues to grow, to spread. The church is exploding in numbers and in disciples. So we pick up the reading here in Acts chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Here's how I would like us to walk through this passage today. I'd like us to look at the threat. What was the threat to the unity of the church? Secondly, we'll look at the process that the apostles went through to address it. Thirdly, we'll look at the solution itself. And then lastly, we'll see the result. What was the end result of this preservation of the unity of the body of Christ? The threat, the threat to unity. This is the first internal conflict in the history of the church as far as we know. And it's an ethnic problem. It stems from an issue of ethnic identity. Isn't it interesting that this continues to provide a case for division and conflict in our world today? The Hellenistic Jews, or the Grecian Jews, were those who had adopted the Greek language and the Greek culture. In this case, most of them probably were not from Jerusalem. They had probably been born and brought up and lived in Greek-controlled territories. If you know, historically speaking, the two greatest powers at this time were Rome and Greece. And so these particular Jews, they were Jewish by heritage, but they had grown up in Greek-controlled territories. Therefore, they spoke Greek as their language, and the Greek culture was their culture. There was also a, a tradition or a common practice at this time in history where Jews who lived outside of Jerusalem, if they had the means, as they grew older, they would move to Jerusalem. And the plan was that they would then be able to die in Jerusalem, the holy city, and be buried there again in the center where they saw the center of their faith, of their Jewish faith and heritage and history. That would also explain why there are so many apparently, Grecian widows because they've, they've moved back and their husbands have passed away and now they're left on their own. It would also explain why 
they had a specific need for provision if their children and their broader family were no longer around to care for them. But regardless, we have this ethnic issue between the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews, the Hellenistic Jews and those Jews that lived in Jerusalem. And the issue was actually quite simple. The Hellenistic Jewish widows were not being included in the distribution of food. Now understand, this was not a governmental program. This wasn't the government that was providing this food. This was the church caring for its own, caring for the most vulnerable within their community. So those who were the the Hebraic Jewish widows were receiving regular distributions of food to provide for them. The Grecian widows were being completely overlooked. And it wasn't a small problem. The division between these two groups was deep and it was painful and it was growing deeper. And the words that are translated here, complained against, when it says the Grecian Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews, the the translation into uh, Latin from the Old Testament, I know that gets really confusing, but it uses the same word as Moses, as as is used in the Old Testament when the children of Israel complained against Moses. When they grumbled against Moses, they murmured against Moses in the wilderness. And so so this is a very serious complaint. It's not just a minor irritation. And the Hellenistic Jews, the Grecian Jews, they're angry and they're hurt and they're feeling undervalued and disenfranchised. And they're probably feeling minimized as well. They're not given value. They're not being treated as equal members of this community. Divisions within the church so often begin with hurt, don't they? If we were able somehow to look at the history of the church through all time, and by church I'm talking about the church universal as well as the the local church, I'm almost certain that we would find that more church splits occur because of hurt than occur because of theological differences. Someone is not heard. Someone is not provided for. One group excludes or appears to exclude or show prejudice against another group. Someone does not feel valued or loved and the pain of these occurrences begins to create a rift, a crack in the unity of the church. So how did the apostles address the issue? How does the early church work to preserve their unity? This brings us to the question of process. Now, I know it might seem obvious to you, but the apostles who are leaders of this church take two immediate attitudes that make all the difference. The first attitude is that they acknowledge that the problem is legitimate. It's easy when a problem doesn't directly affect you, it's easy to minimize that problem. At least it is for me. In this case, the apostles did not minimize it. They recognized that it was a serious issue and they understood that it needed to be addressed. So that's the first step they took. The second step was that they actually addressed it. I have a tendency to put off addressing issues, especially those that are potentially painful. Um, I don't like conflict. 
Um, one of the ways I see this in my life is I keep expecting that car problems that I have will just go away. If, if I hear an odd noise in the car or if something's not functioning quite as it should, you know, I'm just kind of like, God, heal my car. And I just say, maybe if I just go long enough, it'll get better. You know, if I ignore it long enough, it will improve. That rarely happens, right? That rarely happens in the same way. Um, disunity or issues that begin to cause disunity in the church will rarely just take care of themselves. So where there is division, hurt, or pain within the body of Christ, we need to address it. We need to address it on a macro level, and we're going to see this here, how the apostles do that um, when it's something that affects a broad part of the community. But we also need to be willing to do it on individual levels. And this is really where the challenge, the personal challenge, is going to come for us individually as we leave here this morning. It's what is God calling me to do to preserve the unity of his body? Is there anything that I need to do? And the questions that will normally come out of that, that will naturally flow from that is, is there somebody or some bodies within our community that has something against me that I know about? So someone that has something against me and I know they have something against me and we haven't dealt with that, we haven't made that right. Then the first responsibility I have is to go to that person and say, listen, I know you have something against me. Could we talk about this? Can we make it right? Can we move toward reconciliation? How have I wronged you? Or how have I caused you distress? How have I hurt you? Then another, the, the flip side of that coin is then being willing to appropriately and gently be honest about ways that we've been hurt. Not in bitterness, because that's the danger. We, we wait, we don't address, we allow bitterness to grow. And bitterness always causes division. Another step we need to take is forgiveness. I mean, that's, that's one where we've, we've all been hurt, right? We've all been hurt in one way or another. If you're human, you've been hurt. If you're human, that means that you're gonna need to forgive also. And all of us are called to that grace of forgiveness. Forgiveness helps preserve unity in the body of Christ. But how do the disciples continue then, or the apostles, I should say, what's their next step? They've acknowledged the problem and they're preparing to address it. They call together all the disciples. This is an interesting point. And it's a change in terminology. Luke has been using the word believers. And we begin to see a shift here to the word disciples. And from here on out in Acts, more consistently than not, Luke will use the word disciples. There's a point there. There's no understanding in Scripture of a believer who is not a disciple. So to put it another way, we may be bad disciples or good disciples, but we don't have the option of being a believer and not a disciple. Anyone who comes to Jesus Christ is, becomes his disciple. And there are some implications on that that we can't cover right now. But Luke uses these two words interchangeably. And regardless, the apostles call together all the disciples. And there's something beautiful in this because the apostles who are clearly the leaders also recognize the value and voice of all the disciples. If 
The Holy Spirit lives in a believer in Jesus. If the Holy Spirit dwells a disciple, then it would appear as the apostles see it that that person is worthy of a voice, is worthy to be heard, and is, willing to, is worthy of contributing to the process of addressing this issue. And notice that there's no split at this point in the church. I think if this had happened today, we would have ended up with two churches um, or two local churches. The Grecian Jews would have said, you know what? Forget you, Helen, uh, you Hebraic Jews. We're going to go start our own church because we feel comfortable with ourselves. We share the same language. We share the same culture. So we're going to make our own church. You guys can do whatever you want over here. But that doesn't seem to be, that's not even considered. There's a clear desire and commitment to keep the unity of this body. So the process the disciples engage in is acknowledging the problem and then addressing the problem and calling all the disciples together and involving them in the process. The, disciples, the apostles, rather, are still leading, but they invite the disciples broadly into the process. And that brings us to the solution. The general answer to this divisive issue in the church was that seven men were appointed to oversee the food distribution in order to make sure that it was done fairly and that no one who was deserving was left out. Now, there are a number of points about this solution that I want to address. The first is pretty simple, but we see here an example of within the church of a plurality of leadership. We see a plurality in the apostles, and when the apostles encourage or challenge the church to appoint people to deal with this issue, they don't appoint one person. They appoint seven. And this is important. Luke is, is encouraging us and showing us the Holy Spirit is saying, look, it's important that there be a plurality of leaders. Too much power, too much authority centered in one person in a church is dangerous. Secondly, consider the requirement for these men. Actually, let's back up a second. We're going to change that second point. I'm going to say, secondly, consider how they're supposed to be found. Here, the word is you, you, that, you, that is used is choose. The apostles tell the disciples, you choose seven men. That's a very simple word in English. It actually has a little bit more nuance in Greek. It gives the, the impression of look out for. In other words, it's not just about coming together in one meeting, okay, right now, choose someone. It's look out for, be on the lookout, consider, watch, note, notice. Be on the lookout for men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So notice again how all of the disciples are being called into this process. You all choose seven. Be on the lookout for this type of person. Ultimately, the apostles will ratify. The apostles will confirm. They are the ones who lay the hands on the seven and commission them. But the choosing 
or the nominating, maybe we would call it today, is done by the disciples at large. So secondly, be on the lookout. Have your antenna up. Beware of what kind of person we're looking for for service and leadership within the church. Thirdly, we, we come to the specific requirements. Now, if I were an apostle, if I had been an apostle in this context, my natural inclination would have been, okay, what kind of person do we need? We need someone who's good at logistics. We need someone who's good at finances. And we need someone who is good at delivery systems, right? We need, because they have to understand the logistics of where the food comes from and how to get it to the people who are in need. We need people who are good at administration. We need someone who is able to balance the budget, right? So they have, know how much money is available to purchase food, how many people need the food, how often we need to make these deliveries. What, you know, how, often, how long does food last? How often do these widows need food? So that, that's where my mind would go. And those are valid questions. Let me be clear about that. that those are important gifts. We need those gifts within the church. But the apostles do not see those gifts as being the primary requirement. The primary requirement is twofold. Look, be on the lookout for men who are full of the spirit and wisdom. Those are the first qualifications for these leadership positions. <laughs> that raises a, a difficult question though, doesn't it? How, how do we, how do you know if someone's full of the Spirit. We don't have little cards that we get, you know, when we've finished the Holy Spirit fullness course, we don't get a little card, a, a certificate, so that we can show, oh yeah, he's been through the, the Holy Spirit course, he's full of the Spirit, or she's completed, you know, the requirements, she's full of the Spirit. How do we know? Some people might say that, that uh, someone who's full of the Spirit is someone who speaks in tongues. There are some churches that believe that, that teach that. Um, I, I don't agree. I think speaking in tongues can be a sign of the Spirit, um, but it's not a requirement. Some others might say, well, anyone who can perform miracles or who he lays hands on the sick and they're healed, that's someone who's full of the Spirit. But I think for any of those, you're going to have difficulty supporting that from Scripture because the question of being filled with the Spirit has to do with the results of a life. What are the consequences or the results of that person's life? So as this person moves through their day, moves through their life, what is left behind? What's in their wake? As they pass through, is, do we see bitterness and anger and strife and disappointment that follows them everywhere they go? Or do we see a different kind of fruit? And I know a lot of you know I'm getting here at the, the fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is evidence of the Spirit. That's what fruit is. If a tree grows fruit, that fruit is evidence of a number of different factors. It's evidence of the kind of tree on which it's growing. It's evidence of the kind and quality of nutrients that the tree has received from the soil, from the water, from the sunlight. 
It's going to be evidence of the region in which the tree is located. So we, you see, when we talk about a life that's full of the Spirit, for us, that, that, the evidence becomes visible through the, through the fruit. And Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 5. He lists what he calls the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Wow, that's a high standard, isn't it? But the point that Luke is making and that the apostles are making is that these things, this kind of fruit should characterize the life of a leader within the church because it's going to be the evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. A person who is full of the Holy Spirit is going to leave love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control in their wake. As they move through life, that's going to be left behind them. That's going to characterize their passage. And of course, brothers and sisters, none of us, none of us are perfectly any of these things. But by the grace of God in the presence of the Spirit, we are growing in this fruit. And when it came to leadership within the church, the disciples were supposed to be on the lookout for this kind of person. I think that's the same today. That's the first qualification that we need to consider when we're looking at those who will serve or lead within the church and again, I want you to hear me. I'm not minimizing other giftings. I, I'm not saying that we don't consider those who are gifted in administration or logistics or whatever, but I'm saying that within the church, there's no separation between the spiritual and the secular. All service to and in and for the church is spiritual. Therefore, the very first qualification is that the person be filled with the Spirit, that their life be characterized by the fruit that the Spirit gives. Now, after that, we want to place them strategically to serve within the church according to their other giftings, of course, administration, hospitality, other giftings and, and service abilities they may have. So, fourthly, so you may have gotten lost here in all these points. We're still in the, in the answer category. The first aspect of the answer was the, the plurality in leadership. The second was that it involves all the disciples being on the lookout for this kind of person. Thirdly, it's somebody who is filled with the spirit and wisdom. And fourthly, I want us to avoid the error of thinking that the responsibilities of the apostles were of great value, while the responsibilities given to these seven men were kind of minimal. Because when we read this statement, this is how I think many of us hear it. The apostles say this, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That's how we hear it. That's how we interpret it. So we're starting this hierarchy. The ministry of the word of God and of prayer, that has great value. The ministry to the widows, meh. 
you know, somebody else take care of that because we've got our heads up here in the clouds. That is not what's going on. I mean, simply by the fact that the first requirement is that they be filled with the Spirit should show us the concern that the apostles have to address this issue. The question is not of value. The question is of calling and purpose. The apostles understood that their calling was primarily to minister the word of God, teaching and preaching primarily. So if they had stopped teaching and preaching to deal with this issue of food distribution, no one would have been teaching and preaching and the church would not have been fed spiritually. But notice what they said. They didn't say that this wasn't important. Quite the opposite. They said, we need to address this issue. Likewise, you can imagine if those seven um, who were appointed to deal with the issue with the widow said, wow, we've been appointed leaders now. So, apostles, we're going to join you and we're going to dedicate ourselves to the ministry of the word. Then we still have this deep division in the church that's not being addressed. That's not being dealt with. Rather, this was an opportunity for more people to be invited into service and leadership in order to fill new roles, new responsibilities, and address new issues. They were valued. These seven men were valued. I, as most of you know, worked on a ship for two years. Some others of you also have had the the privilege of doing that. I learned a lot about life aboard ship, of course, living on a ship. I'd never lived on a ship before, but there was an interesting um, hierarchical order on board ship that I did not know about. Do you know that there is another officer on the ship of equal rank with the captain? Did any of you know this? Topher, you know this. Nope. You failed in your learning on the ship. No. Uh, yeah. The chief engineer. The chief engineer is actually considered the same rank as the captain of the ship. Now, clearly there's an order involved. The captain has the final say. But they have vastly different responsibilities and both of their responsibilities are absolutely crucial to the functioning and the health of the ship. However, one of those is much more visible than the other. The chief engineer is rarely seen. And he works primarily way down in the bowels of the ship. And if you've ever been in the working engine room of a ship, that is not a pleasant place to be. When I was on board the the Dulas ship, the average temperature during a voyage in the engine room was between 45 and 50 degrees. Let me tell you something else. It's very noisy, terribly noisy. It's hot and it's dirty. When you imagine the captain of the ship, I know what you imagine. You imagine all white with the gold braid, maybe a hat, a lot of honor, a lot of prestige. The chief engineer usually looks pretty gross. He wears dirty overalls that are greasy. He's got grease under his fingernails. Why? Because he's down there making sure that the machinery of the ship is running as it should. So imagine if a ship loses 
their captain. And just imagine, really, a chief engineer is going to be running up and down, 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 up to the bridge, the place of honor of the captain, trying to see where the ship is going, and then run back down to make sure the engines are running right. Or conversely, if the captain has to take over both roles, it's impossible. Or what if, what if suddenly the chief engineer says, you know what, I don't care anymore. I don't care. I'm going to sleep. So the captain's up there and man, he's great, you know, he's going along and all of a sudden the engines die. The generators stop working. And you know what, if the ship isn't being propelled through the water, you can't steer it. And you're totally at the mercy of the, the current, the tide, and the wind. And conversely, if the, if the captain is up there responsible for guiding the ship and directing the ship and ordering the ship, and he decides, I'm tired of this, I quit. Even if the engines are running right, even if the generators are running perfectly, eventually that ship's going to go off course, potentially run into a, other shipping or into land, regardless. Disaster looms. The point I'm trying to make is both of those positions, they're very, very different. They're different in appearance, they're different in function, but they both have great value, essential value to the functioning of the ship. And in the same way, people who serve in different ways within the church, there are some we, we put on certain levels in our minds of higher hierarchy, and there may be situations of higher responsibility, but we all have value before the Lord, and the service done to the body is of equal importance, even if the visibility is different. And we see this clearly here because the apostles are not saying, you do the little stuff. They're saying, please deal with this really big issue. Fifthly and finally, they chose men who reflected the diversity of the body. Now today, we might not know this when we just glance at it, but all seven of these names are Greek names. Not only are they Greek names, but one of them was not even Jewish by birth. The last one listed. He was from Antioch, Nicholas from Antioch. He was a convert to Judaism. And Luke's kind of laying the groundwork for us about the diversity of the church. So right now, almost all the disciples are Jewish. That's going to change very, very soon. And the gospel is going to explode across the known world. And we're going to see more tension as those who have no Jewish background at all become disciples of Jesus. And we're going to see how the church handles this issue of, wow, so far we've been all Jewish, and even so we've had conflict, and now we're going to welcome in the, all these Gentiles. How are we going to do this? How is the Holy Spirit going to do this? All these names listed are Greek names. Now, to be fair, I want, to, I want you to know that in this time, most Jewish men had three names, a Roman name, a Greek name, and a Jewish name, and they could kind of use them interchangeably depending on the context. So it's, it's not necessarily the case that all seven of these men were Grecian Jews, but nevertheless, Luke is making a point by using their Greek names. He's, he's talking about a reflection of the diversity of the body of Christ in the leadership of the body of Christ. And this brings us to the result. This should not surprise you by now. The result of the preservation of unity within the church of God is continued growth. 
growth brackets this passage. The first verse, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, and then at the end we see, and so the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. I, don't, I can't imagine this kind of growth because we, it's just over and over and over again. It grew, it grew, it grew. The number of disciples increased. The number of believers increased. Growth, 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 growth. And this is the second time where we see growth directly as a result of the unity of the body of Christ and the preservation of that unity. Unity enables the church in its witness. Disunity and division seriously inhibit the church in its witness. The last thing I just want to draw out here at the end is that a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's the last phrase. It's an interesting way to phrase it. It didn't say that many of the priests believed. It didn't say that many of the priests became disciples. It said many of the priests became what? Obedient to the faith. Faith in Christ will result in a transformed life. It will result in transformed actions. It will result in a growing obedience to the word of God. And that's what Luke emphasizes here as he says that many priests became obedient to the faith. Remember when when Jesus gave his 12 disciples the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what? Teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. A genuine faith in Jesus will result in obedience to Jesus. So as we apply this um, to us, Of course, there are broader questions that address themselves more broadly to the leadership of the church as a whole, lessons about leadership, about process, about what it means to serve within the body of Christ. But there are also individual applications, and I touched on this earlier. What do I need to do to preserve the strength and unity of the church so that the witness of the church continues to grow? Ephesians 4.3, Paul writes, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's an invitation, a command that's given to all of us. Make every effort to keep that unity. We all have that responsibility. So I want to encourage you once again to address issues that lead to disunity. Whether it's in your own heart, whether it's in a relationship that you have with someone else or with another family. Let's be willing to admit fault but also give forgiveness and receive forgiveness. We will celebrate communion now. And unfortunately, in in the time of COVID, there's something that, that we've lost in the imagery of communion. When Jesus instituted this with his disciples, there was one loaf of bread and there was one cup, right? And he took that loaf and he broke it and that one loaf gets passed to the disciples. He takes the one cup of wine and it's that same cup that all the disciples drink from. Don't worry, I'm not suggesting that we go to a common chalice, be at peace, 
But what I do want us to remember is what it was intended in Christ's heart for us to see in this symbolism and this imagery. Paul says it this way, we are united because we all partake of the same loaf who is Christ. So we are one because we partake of the same loaf which is Christ. So the original imagery was one loaf that feeds everybody, one cup from which everyone drinks because that one loaf and that one cup are Jesus Christ. And he ultimately is both the source and the preserver of unity within the church. So as we celebrate communion, part of that imagery is we are celebrating the union we have as individuals with Jesus and therefore the union that we have with everyone else in Christ. I want us to keep that in the forefronts of our minds as we celebrate this morning. To that end, I'd like you to take a few minutes to reflect to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your heart. If there's any unconfessed sin, now is an opportunity to deal with it. And as I've said the last few weeks, don't worry about trying to open your little communion kit now. We'll have time to do that later. Let's just take this time to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to speak.